0: The Oregon Healthcare Interpreters Association is pleased to announce the launch of its new interpreter directory. Join OHCIA's interpreter directory and be ready for what's next. The interpretation industry is changing. Laws are being passed that require more certification, more and more interpretation is going remote with video or phone, machine interpretation is getting better and better. Plus, Companies are cutting costs for services like interpretation. If you aren't certified, don't want to use technology, don't have special skills, and don't have the ability to be flexible, you'll get less and less work as an interpreter. The OHCIA's Interpreter Directory, or ID, can help. It brings together interpreters and the organizations that hire them, so they can help each other provide much-needed interpretation services. The ID is free to all interpreters, forever. It's paid for by subscription fees charged to hiring organizations. It lists trained, certified interpreters, so hiring organizations can trust the quality of the services offered. Interpreters can list specialties, availability, and more, so hiring organizations can easily find talent. OHCIA are the right people to bring interpreters and organizations together like never before. Their leadership has deep roots in the interpreter community and care deeply about where this industry is going. They have advocated for interpreters and healthcare interpretation since 2010, and they're trusted by individuals and organizations alike. To find out more about OHCIA's interpreter directory, check out the link in the episode notes. Welcome back to another episode of the Brand the Interpreter podcast. This is Mireya, your host, and happy post-day of giving thanks. If you're in the States, I hope your day of Thanksgiving was filled with lots of laughter and love and, of course, food. I, for one, am grateful that you're listening to today's podcast. So thank you, as always, for your continued support of this podcast. I'm excited for today's conversation, and I hope you are too. So how about we just dive right on in, shall we? Danilo Formolo is the Assistant Vice President of Language Access at Atrium Health, one of the largest healthcare systems in the U.S. Danilo is entrusted with leading and transforming one of the most robust healthcare language access programs in the country and is responsible for language access in four different regions of the Southeast. That's in addition to operational leadership, strategic initiatives, including building a large scalable infrastructure through the use of technology to increase access, optimize efficiencies, and contain costs on a system level. Danilo earned two bachelor's degrees from UNC Charlotte, plus an MBA. Danilo Formolo is well-known in the industry and has delivered conference presentations around the country on numerous occasions. Danilo is also responsible for organizing the second largest medical interpreter conference in the U.S., drawing 400 interpreters from the Carolinas and beyond. He also co leads the Carolinas Association of Medical Interpreter Leaders, a consortium of healthcare language access leaders dedicated towards advancing the profession. Danilo serves as a board member for the Latin American Chamber and on a national level as a commissioner on the Certification Commission for Healthcare Interpreters. And today, he is here to share his language professional story with us. So, without further ado, please help me welcome Danilo Formolo to the show. Danilo, welcome to the show. I'm excited you're here. Thank you for being here.
1: Oh, thank you, Media. It's It's truly an honor. I feel like this has been a long time coming.
0: Are you kidding me? Like the conversations that we're going to be having today and that you are allowing me the opportunity to share with uh, our listeners. I think it's just we're, we're in it for a long one. I'm just going to premise it, guys. At this point, I'm going to let you guys know that I think this is going to be one of those great conversations. I mean, it's just going to bring in other conversations, I think other topics. So let's get started.
1: Sounds great. Sounds All great. Right. I'm excited.
0: Let's get to know Danilo just a little bit more. So as as you may be aware, I'd like to probe into taking us a blast to the past uh, and finding out a little bit more about who you are as a person or, You know, or growing up. So if you wouldn't mind sharing with us uh, where you grew up and what a fond childhood memory it is that you have.
1: Yeah, absolutely. I'm happy to talk about that. Well, um, a lot of people don't realize it, but I grew up in a small town in eastern North Carolina. Um, I was born in, in New Jersey, um, and of course, I'm the son of, of immigrants. Um, my mom is from Colombia, from Cali, actually, and my dad is from Italy, literally off the boat. And my, uh, it was, my grandfather um, was actually drafted to, to Mussolini's army, so he actually served in a concentration camp and was um, looking for a better life for his family. And then in 1958, moved the family over and they settled in in New Jersey. Um, My mother in the 70s happened to be visiting her sister who was already living in New Jersey. And they, um, my mom and my dad met by way of a mutual Egyptian friend that introduced them. Uh, My, this Egyptian friend and my mom were taking ESL classes together. And the guy says to my mom, there's this guy that I want you to meet. So he invites her to this church league volleyball game and my mom goes and attends this volleyball game and she sees that there's a guy that's out there on the volleyball court, just really bossing everyone around, but not really contributing a lot himself <laughs> athletically. Yeah. That was my dad. Yeah. <laughs> so, uh, so his work, um, took him to, to North Carolina. Um, he, he's an engineer, um, my mom is an artist by trade and a linguist also. She does um, interpreting translation, that sort of thing. She's also taught Spanish. And my dad's an engineer, a retired engineer, of course, and uh, works for a company that, that makes, uh, worked for a company for many years that makes brakes for the railroad industry. And so uh, that brought our family to a little town called Laurenburg, North Carolina, that is um, about two hours to the east of Charlotte, North Carolina where I currently live, and about two hours to the south of Raleigh, North Carolina. And so I grew up in a small rural town in North Carolina, um, but, of course, in a bicultural and bilingual household at the same time.
0: What were you learning? Um, what languages were you were you learning?
1: Yeah, so both, the interesting that you should mention that or ask that because both at the same time. Um, my mom tells me that I would go and tell my dad one thing in English I didn't realize, that the two of them understood each other. And then I would go and repeat the same thing in Spanish to my mom. So I guess maybe I was destined to be um, a linguist at, at the time. So uh,
0: <laughs>
1: so grew up speaking both languages. Um, you asked about a, a fond childhood memory. And um, the one thing that comes to mind is my many trips to Disney. I have been to Disney more times than I can even count. Um, My dad frequently had conferences that he would go to in Florida. Many times in Orlando, sometimes in Fort Lauderdale, and so um, we would say, "Hey, let's let's go over to um, to Disney." And so that
0: okay, wait, but as a Californian though, sorry to interrupt, Danilo, there is a big difference between. disney world and Sorry. Disneyland. land you were going to disney world it sounds like right
1: i was i was so not the original <laughs> not the original mickey mouse there in anaheim but um but yes the the orlando walt disney world so i guess i wow. should i should clarify that but um but yeah and so that was uh, you know that gave me sort of the, the, an appreciation for that and uh sort of translated into, no pun intended, into uh, my kids really liking that and and being able to um, go now as an adult. And uh, my wife and I take our our, our boys to Walt Disney World. Um, and with my parents, we went with them, which was really nice. That was the last time we went um, pre-pandemic. Um, and so uh, I feel that that, that kind of laid that foundation and really segued, segued into the love for that.
0: What do you feel as as a child when you were going to this particular amusement park? What do you feel you love the most about the experience?
1: I think the fact that it just really did as a child, as a small child, looking through it, through that lens, just thinking that it was truly magical, that it was truly a magical experience. I mean, we all know it's there's that and, and, and the reality of of the world we face. But I think that you can just sort of step outside of that reality and and just dream big. Um, you know, anything from the fun of the Disney characters to um, the Tomorrowland and riding on Space Mountain and everything, to me, it just all seems so surreal.
0: I love that. I I think that you're super on point with um, explaining that it's about the experience. And what I find even more interesting is that uh, that comes into your life, creating things with the intention to create a unique experience. It comes back to you later on in your life. And we'll talk we'll talk a little bit more about that. Um, But before we even get there, let's continue learning a little bit more about you, Danilo you mentioned that um pre-recording you you had this this desire or thought that you wanted to become a doctor when you grew up do you recall where that stemmed from or you know what was what was the interest in the health industry
1: i have no idea where i got that inspiration from <laughs> to be honest with you um i heard my dad talking about it frequently how he um he would always be able to handle some more, I don't know, sensitive cases, sensitive matters, things that might be a little more of the, I don't know, gross nature when it came to biology and things like that. Um, And so he always talks about, always talked about how he should have become a surgeon, he should have become a doctor. and, And he really likes to, to, to this day is to like to do a lot of woodworking and build things. And he's really good with, with his hands and he's always very handy. And, and so um, for some reason, that sparked an interest in in me and you know, going just to my regular checkups when I was a kid, I just always thought that that was cool um because I saw them helping people and making a difference um when I was sick, you know, I could go to the doctors, uh, you know, kids are getting sick all the time and and uh here I can go and take some medicine and get better i I don't know, as a child, I just thought that that was was a neat thing and and really had the desire to help people and make a difference in people's lives.
0: When did that change for you? When did you decide, okay, maybe not?
1: Probably high school. (laughs) Probably when I, probably when um, a a friend of mine from high school, a couple of them whose dads were doctors, um, when they told me how many years of school it would take (laughs) to do that, Um, And both of them said, well, you know, you have four years in med school, then you have your four years of residency, Um, you know, that's after your undergrad. And um, so you'll probably become a full-fledged practicing physician at the age of 30. (laughs) And of course, I think as a teenager or even college student, I just, uh, you know, I just thought, well, I would rather go ahead and and start my life before that and, and not really end up with a bunch of debt. So... That probably the thought of that probably intimidated <laughs> me a little
0: bit. Yeah, we're always in such a hurry. Yeah. <laughs> that's so true. What 30s? No way. That's way too old. Yep.
1: <laughs> exactly. As a teenager, that's very old. What,
0: what when did you get started uh, in terms of, of um, languages? Did that start in school or or what did your interest in, in terms of career uh, change into?
1: Yeah. So I, um, I majored in international business in college, and so I had this idea that I wanted to do something, if not international, at least with an international flair, if you will. Mm -hmm. Um, Seeing my mom, um, so my aunt actually used to also run a a language access, she's since uh, deceased many years ago, but she ran a language access program at a hospital in Memphis, Tennessee. Um, and she would do translations and my mom would collaborate with her on those translations. Um, my aunt would tell her the people that she worked with, well, it, you know, that that translation is currently with my editor right now. And of course my editor being my mom, um, and I would see my mom doing, uh, court interpreting and, and doing interpreting at the health department. And she would talk about how, um, how rewarding this was. And so that was always at the back of my mind. Um, Perhaps it was just a seed that was planted that really didn't surface itself until later. Um, but in, after college, my first job out of college was in sales, working for a language services provider, um, and so I got a little bit involved with the translation project management and with the um, you know with the interpreting side of things, and um, and it was really interesting because I, I worked for a, a small business that was an incubator. And the, um, at the time, the, the young lady who now has a successful language services, um, company, you know, she started this business in, in her house, basically at the, at the dining room table. Um, and she was a French major in in college. And, and I was very fortunate that she, she hired me to, to work with her. But, um, but just seeing that just, linguistics and being able to make that difference and bridge that gap is really what um, what sparked my interest in really continuing with that further.
0: Could I zoom in a little bit on that on that experience of yours? You're working for a language service provider as um, as a sales agent. What were you selling?
1: So I was selling um, translation and interpreting services essentially to whom? Um, to um most of most so most of who i would go after um would be marketing agencies that essentially wanted to um had clients that want that had an international presence that were trying to market their products Um, we would also go after um other marketing agencies that did brand Name analysis to ensure that the their brands uh, were appropriate across different global markets. Um, there were uh, several manufacturers. You know, there might be a, a company that has a factory in a foreign country and they need a manual translated into French or some other language. Um, and so that was who we would, we would go after. Law firms as well, too, had a lot of law firms in the area for interpreting um, as far as healthcare, those accounts were sort of already established when I arrived, so I didn't really expand that too too much. Um, but essentially, that was that was what I was doing was was selling um, you know language services, translating and interpreting to a variety of different industries.
0: No, that's great. That's great to know. I think it's 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 helpful for those of us that uh, provide the actual language service to understand. The complexities and you know what what goes on behind the scene even of an LSP, right? So um, I'm always interested in just knowing uh, what what is that like, right? Because that's sure. a component that does affect us, but we never really know how. So uh, I appreciate you sharing that. Eventually, um, did you did this morph into something else, or did you transition into a different role, or what happens after this?
1: It wasn't until years later. I mean, it must have been between the time that I did that until the time that I got into healthcare-based interpreting was probably about a four-year time frame, a four-year gap. I did sales, to be honest. I did. I, I worked a few different roles. Um, I sold um, – I, I worked for a headhunter Um Agency that we sold, you know, employment services. Um, I also did recruitment as well. Eventually got to where I just felt with sales that I was just spinning my wheels. And I knew that I I knew that I could really have high earning potential. Um, but I was really tired of meeting those goals, meeting those quotas and everything. Um, and at one point, my friend who was working for the hospital, he just happened to see this particular job posted. And he said, check this out. I think this is right up your alley. You have, um, some leadership experience. You have experience in the industry. I think that you should check it out. And don't you know that guy, he found out who the hiring director was at the time. He picked up the phone and called her and said, I have a friend that you need to talk to. And so I'm forever indebted to my friend Jack for, uh, um, Segueing me into the industry.
0: Um, what yeah. role was that?
1: It was a language services manager position at um, at the flagship hospital, at one particular hospital um, that is part currently our flagship facility.
0: Take us to the moment now where you're you you, you got hired. i I'm, I'm going to assume <laughs> you got the role, and you're actually experiencing now what it's like internally in a hospital setting, um, not necessarily selling the service to this hospital, but now it's actual, you know, oversight of the service itself within a healthcare setting. Bring us to that experience for you.
1: So I got to be honest with you. I didn't know what the heck I was getting myself into. I mean, you know, I'm going into this big, you know, 900 bed level one trauma center um, from kind of cushy office jobs or whatever I'd had before. And so it was a completely different culture than what I was used to in a good way, a culture of caring, a culture of compassion, and really a culture of love. So, um, and at the same time, not just providing these services, but also having to lead a team, Um, a team that at the time was all older than me. I was probably the youngest kid on the block. Uh, At the time, I might have been, I don't know, 27, 28, uh, when I got that position, and a team primarily of of women. Um, I think the only other guy on the team might have been one interpreter. And so um, this was definitely a big change for me that that did have a little, I got to admit, I had a little anxiety going into this. Mm -hmm. Um, But I had, there were a couple of uh, veteran uh, team members there that really took me under their wing. And really just uh, I can remember the one she said, those shoes that you're wearing, those nice wingtip shoes that you have on your first day here. Yeah. Get rid of those. Those are going to be no good to you because you're going to be walking around this place a lot.
0: I wish someone had told me that on my first (laughs) day. I went home crying. Little did I know. Shoes. make a big difference in healthcare yep. settings, people. <laughs> yep.
1: And and this particular interpreter, who was the first interpreter ever hired at that hospital, she didn't take elevators. <laughs> she would run up and down the stairs from like the second floor to the 11th floor, boom, boom, boom. And so she said, we don't wait on elevators. It's faster to just take the stairs because when you're, you know, when they need you, they need you now. So so we we just, we go, we run. And I appreciated that. Um, and I really was able to see how a team worked, um, how a, a there was a, a team approach to really serving our customers, our internal customers, which were the doctors and nurses and social workers and physical therapists and everyone that we worked with. And of course, our external customers being our um, customers of, limited limited English proficiency our our patients and our families um that don't speak English and so um a lot of it was baptism under fire and of course I needed some training to do this as well too um of of, and I'm thinking okay I'm a manager but I also need to learn how to do this and how to interpret because as a manager I have to roll up my sleeves and 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 do the work so um might have been a little overwhelming at the beginning but um But something eventually clicked. I had a certain aha moment where I realized that what we were doing was making such a difference. um, And you you can't put a value on that.
0: What did you find to be the biggest challenge about the role?
1: I think the biggest challenge about the role was probably trying to make everybody happy. (laughs) I think the harder part was leading people. At the time, versus you know providing services to the to the hospital community, um, you know having been new to a manager, I really wanted to to be the nice guy. I really wanted to say yes to everybody, um, grant everyone the time off that they that they wanted, um, make every single exception for everyone. And I learned from that. I learned from that 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 you and, and as a leader, you have to do a lot of that, right? But at the same time, you also do have to um to hold people accountable for their for their jobs and for their responsibilities. So I, I would think that, that actually the art of leading at the time, being that I was a new leader, was probably the most challenging aspect.
0: How long were you there, Danilo?
1: In that particular role? Yes. Well. Before being promoted, oh, to be honest with you, I still am there, just in a different role. I was in the manager role for five years before being promoted to director. And so I have been with the same healthcare system now for 18 years. I spent five years five years as a manager, then five years as a director when we consolidated and expanded tremendously. Um, five years as another director, a patient experience director. Um, And then I've been an assistant vice president for just over two years.
0: I was just going to ask, what's your new role?
1: Yep. Yeah. So it's um, assistant vice president of language access. And uh, I've had that particular role uh, for just over two years. And so that is an enterprise role, really, that encompasses all of the markets that we serve, not just the local markets, but um, those in other states now.
0: What continues to inspire you about the work that you do, particularly with this particular um hospital setting? what What continues to give you that inspiration to keep going and not knowing not just keep going, but keep moving up?
1: The people I work with is a huge is huge. Being able to first of all, provide, a a job opportunity for talent and really taking folks by the hand who really want to do this and want to learn and want to make a difference Um, and seeing them grow as well, seeing them grow from, I mean, we've, the amount of people that we've hired who have gone on to become doctors and nurses, I can't even count. I can't even count. Uh, And that's just such a beautiful thing. In addition, I think that knowing that the work that we do makes a difference for many people when they come to the United States. And first off, no one plans to, no one pretends to understand the US healthcare system, right? It's very complex. But then imagine for an LEP to come and try to understand that and navigate that. And to be able to create an in-language experience through language access and bridge that gap is really what keeps me going.
0: Let's talk a little bit more about your role as it's transitioned, because I imagine that each each time that there was a change in role, there was a new challenge. Um, And then, you know, trying to find a solution to that challenge. So what have been your different experiences in terms of challenges and how have they transformed through each experience, if you will?
1: Sure. Well, one of the biggest challenges that I'm sure that a lot of folks in our industry have experienced um, has been the transition to the virtual modalities, Mm. uh, to the virtual modality more. Um, I think with the pandemic that that definitely aided the acceleration of that. Um, But even before that, we were well on track um, to go in that direction. And so one of the things that, that you, we have to realize is that when it comes to our virtual work versus our in-person or on-site work, um, we have to recognize that there are appropriate circumstances for each. I think that we need to recognize that there are certain things that can be done virtually and certain things that probably need to be done in person. However, I think that as we as we started to transition to more of those virtual modalities, um, and as we started to deploy that technology more and more, um, there was there were definitely some challenges, particularly with our medical staff. Um, there were some that came and said, "I love this. This is the greatest thing I've ever seen. You can you get this iPad, you push the button and boom, the interpreter's there in 30 seconds. But then there was there were some that just absolutely said, "Well, I, I just don't want to use that because I don't like it." It was something new to them. Mm-hmm. And I completely understand, um, but being able to, we had to you know, partner with our physicians, with our leaders and everyone um, to really ensure them that we were still going to create an equal standard of care for our LEPs. So that was, that's been definitely a big challenge um, that comes to mind
0: yeah then that's one of the most recent ones, but you know you you had mentioned earlier there was a system created in the hospital i mean they need they they were hiring for a manager there was already uh interpreters, medical interpreters uh in in this setting um already there so so there was some system that was already in place. this hospital had already recognized the need for language professionals right and they had already hired people to do the job and then brought someone in to do some oversight and then kept kept growing that role what would you contribute to be part of the success of the systems and policies that are in this healthcare setting that that continue to expand language access and its services
1: I would say that being able to build a scalable model, um, you know, in starting out, it was really just one hospital. Um, And there were all these, a few pockets of interpreters reporting to different areas, such as hospitals or clinics or whatever it might be. Um, And really being able to keep up with the growth, the tremendous growth that we've experienced. Um, especially where we are in the South, um, that has experienced such rapid population growth with our LEP community. So being able to scale up and keep up with that, to keep up with the demand for interpreter services as, um, as the, the immigrant population has increased tremendously in our area. Um, I think that has been one. Um, The other one, too, a big contribution has been innovation, Um, being able to look at things differently, being able to um, re-engineer our processes, being able to become more efficient um, as related to that large-scale
0: model. How do you have these conversations? I think that, you know, when we Uh, zoom out and and we can say scalable models, innovation, you know, these are things that that are, they give us a general idea of what contributes to a a successful model within an organization. But what does that look like at a smaller scale? Like, what are you doing specifically that you would say, this, this took This took some work to get it going, Um, some extra effort, some extra conversations, or what does that look like at a smaller scale?
1: Well, the good news is that um, within my role, within the umbrella, we have several leaders um, boots on the ground. So currently there are five language access managers, um, and then we have some supervisors and leads here and there. Um, that lead a team of about 140 interpreters at this point. And so right now, the good news is that we have a lot of those. We have that local resource so that on that small scale, we can have those conversations. And so one of our community clinics, for example, um, has, I, it's a community clinic, but to me, it's really a healthplex plex. It's about nine or 10 different specialties under one roof in a three-story building. And in that building, we have 10 interpreters. So someone has, I can't be everywhere, right? Right. So um, we have Liz and Liz is our language access supervisor for that particular clinic. And Liz is amazing. She has, um, and it, it has taken fostering relationships with those local practices, with those physicians, And sometimes even literally taking them by the hand and showing them said, you know, I don't really, I don't know about this video interpreting thing. I'm not really, I'm feeling kind of anxious about it. Okay, let me show you. So this is physically what we had to do. I'm going to bring this device in with you. We're just going to try it. We're just going to, you need a Spanish interpreter? Okay, push the button and tell you what, I'm just going to be here in the background. And if anything goes wrong, I'm here. I'm here for you. And so that once they saw it, they thought, okay, you know what? I think I can do this. Knowing that they still have that safety net, that we were still there. And that we still are there for them. Um, we're able to have kind of those local um, conversations that are simply a microcosm of really the larger system.
0: It's definitely. And I think that great leadership speaks volumes as well. Understanding. I think there's several components, uh, I imagine, right? This is just me guessing. I've never uh, necessarily had an official lead role um, or leading role, I should say, um, nevertheless, I do look up to great leaders uh, in the industry, and and there's things that resonate in in great leadership. Um, first and foremost is the understanding and the ability to be able to look at um, at the systems issue. Right, what are these issues in the system that we can continue that are working or that could improve or expand? But then you have the individual issues. So you came in with a team that was. Already there, and then it continued to grow from there through the years. What were those issues with the individuals themselves that you said we? There's got to be something that we need that we need to do with this, particularly with such a large hospital. I imagine that the scenarios or the encounters that these interpreters, staffed interpreters that were coming across was doing something emotionally in that aspect, in that regard, what did you start to notice with your individual staffed interpreters?
1: After a while, sometimes, especially during busier seasons, um, when you have patient surges, you see people really start to wear down a bit. There is that fine line between productivity um, and burnout, right um, There's such a focus on productivity. Um, I have many people who reach out to me who say hey how do you how do you measure your productivity? How do you make sure that your interpreters are productive? Well, <clears throat> I will tell you that we don't have a microscope on on people saying, hey um, you know you didn't interpret for 80% of your day today what's going on no. Um, It's how can we support you? But you do start to see some folks start to possibly wear down. Medical interpreting is not easy work. We all know that. Um, And especially as we bear witness to a lot of potentially difficult or sensitive situations that can lead to burnout, vicarious trauma, Um, which that resonates near and dear to my heart. Maybe we can mention that in a little bit. Um, And so really early on, I realized that we needed some sort of a support system in place um, for retention and for um, a variety of different, for engagement and everything. And so um, one of the, we, we would of course give them different resources such as access to something called code lavender that was um, something that was established within our healthcare system years ago the, um, through our office of, of spiritual care that anytime that someone is feeling whatever it might be uh, they can talk to a chaplain or they can talk to someone a counselor or, or uh, you know or whatever it might be to, to really talk about what how they're feeling um I felt that it was important for us to be able to debrief, right? We don't have to have patient identifiers and anything like that. But being able to talk about your work, talk about your experiences within that safe zone with those that are in the same boat, that are doing the same thing that you're doing, that was absolutely necessary for us to do. Um, We don't want anyone losing hope or anyone not leaving work at work or affecting their personal lives. And so um, I feel that language access leaders really need to provide that safe zone, provide that, that haven um, in order for people to be able to not just be productive, but be be their absolute best at everything that they do.
0: I love that. And I do want to talk a little bit more with you um, about the vicarious trauma, but before we get into that, um, pretty heavy subject. I'd like to ask you, was there a way to measure the usability of this new uh, uh, code lavender? In, in other words, were you able to some, somehow measure that interpreters were actually utilizing this new system?
1: Most of the time, that is um, anonymous and confidential. And so we wouldn't always get notification that someone would, would leverage that. Same with employee assistance programs. You know, um, a lot of times those are confidential. And so um, we would, in fact, tell folks that you do what you need to do. Um, But we did also notice, though, that even being able to debrief with each other, um, I can't measure that necessarily, but we did notice an increased level of of energy and passion um, for for their work um, and just being reminded of what they do every day.
0: What and does so- that look like, Danilo? Like debrief with each other. Does that mean that you allow your staff interpreters the opportunity to have a, a location where they, you know, it's a centralized location for the team in between calls or what does that look like?
1: Right. So right now it's our we have so many different teams around the region um, including our virtual team of course our virtual team that we that we uh, that is now our largest team that we uh, established that four and a half years ago but um, and so that would be a a a virtual (laughs) a virtual experience but for example in a hospital setting yes um, first off our coordinator or dispatcher or manager recognizing that someone just after a difficult encounter, just need some time, right? They just need some time away from their work. They can come in. Um, they can talk to one of our leads, if you will, um, about how they're feeling and 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 what they just experienced. And so, it's something that really our managers provide or leaders provide within that setting mm-hmm. um, in in the office, of course, within a closed door setting, so that you're not you're not violating any privacy
0: rules yeah no. i and I only ask that because, you know, many have have perhaps heard me mention here in this space that one of my best experiences um in in the interpreting uh, in medical was the children's hospital, you know, And there was various reasons why uh, much to do with the systems that were created or that were established you know in place in support of um, the role of the interpreter. But one of the very unique experiences that I that I hold near and dear to my heart was the fact that it wasn't necessarily a like dedicated centralized location for the interpreting team, but it was kind of like the unofficial room where we would all go in between calls to debrief, which made a huge difference for us. The new ones that had just onboarded um, were able to connect with the seasoned interpreters so that medical terminology. Um, and even if I had just come out of a very, you know, very um serious assignment in which someone was just informed that you know their child was going to pass or something of the sort. And then all of a sudden I get paged to go to something potentially just as serious right. where the interpreters would say, Let's swap. Because yes. you like that's that's a lot, right? Of like yes. one so that's why I ask is because even that, indeed, I believe, absolutely makes a big difference in being absolutely. able to with your team.
1: You you go to a difficult assignment where you've just interpreted for, um, you know, an end of life scenario. And then you're expected, what, in two minutes to get it together and go help with like a diabetic education right. <laughs> or, or, or anything or, you know, or to the emergency department. And so you need that, that time in between, um, or, you know, the, the your next assignment probably should be something a little bit, a little bit lighter. I will say though, I will add that, you know, all of our interpreters, we do put them through our standard. In addition to on, on the job training, they do a 40 hour classroom training. Of course that helps to, you um, to help you know fulfill their certification requirement if they choose to to pursue that which we're we're trying to get them to do that um part of that classroom training there is a section um i'm a bridging the gap licensed trainer and there is a section on um on self-care but it doesn't really go into the module is great but it doesn't really go into that much detail and so Instead of doing that, I basically do a one hour training with our team, maybe it's a little bit longer than that, on self-care and vicarious trauma and being able to recognize what are the signs um, and what are some of the controls. It, it sort of it sort of encompasses multiple concepts. Um, vicarious trauma, self-care, but we bring in a little bit of that old school, demand control schema um, that we've we've heard throughout the years of, of how the three kind of interrelate with each other. Um, but ultimately, the goal is to ensure that the interpreter is feeling their best so that they can perform their best.
0: Yeah, I really love how you pointed out this very thin line between the productivity and the burnout, right? And how people are asking more about increasing productivity. And I, you know, all I could imagine was like focusing on the individual themselves. How are they feeling in order when we feel great? We're doing great. We're working great, right? We're we're working to our maximum. I feel particularly for those of us that love what we're doing, you know, energy is up. And so are we focusing on that angle and that aspect? Well, let's focus on how our interpreters are feeling. And like you mentioned, what can I do to help? right how what can i do to help you as the individual i think it's key that potentially potentially in 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 some organizations is is missing they're focused more on covering productivity doing the assignments you know covering everything that's coming in as opposed to how are you doing danilo though right
1: absolutely and and one of the things too that um that i feel is one of the most important things we can do to, for our interpreters is to develop them and allow them to grow professionally as interpreters um one of the challenges too you know i'm remembering this now um is if you want to be an interpreter where we are working you know you you go there and you work as an interpreter and you stay there for a long time or you leave and go find something else and the only way that you get promoted at the time is if your manager um, leaves or dies or moves on or whatever, and you out of the group happen to be the right candidate, and you might not be the right candidate because not everyone who's a good interpreter can necessarily become a leader or wants to be a leader.
0: Or wants to, right?
1: And so, being able to um, to create opportunities for them to grow. So, in twenty fourteen or fifteen. We implemented a um, an interpreter ladder program that our interpreters could go from an interpreter one to a two to a three. For example, um, they can meet certain education requirements or um, work on special projects, do a presentation, um, and and then they can they can grow um, in, in their profession. And along with that comes an increase in their salary too. So there's that incentive there. And I'll tell you, where we work right now, um, I work for Atrium Health, which is a large healthcare system in the Southeast. Um, We do not, we prefer, but I will admit that we do not require um, national certification yet. Um, That is different from other states. And there are probably people on the West Coast that are cringing and saying, how can you not? But I will tell you that um, we are we are not quite as rich in our candidate pool in certain areas. Um, California, New York, uh, might be a little richer in their candidate pool for qualified and certified medical interpreters. If we if we made it a requirement from day one, we would we would not have candidates. Um, however, those that are interpreter three are certified, mm-hmm. and we have the amount of certified healthcare interpreters that we have right now on our team is just growing like a weed um and it just really makes me very proud very very proud um, absolutely
0: well i think because it also gives them a sense of pride you know when we when we are able to be recognized for our efforts, no matter in what position we are, we operate at a different level. And so um, I love, love, love the the interpreter ladder program. So each step requires the interpreter to meet specific specifications. And once that's completed, um, the incentive is higher pay, or is there something else?
1: It's the title, and it's the higher pay. But... At the same time, we are able to give those um, teammates additional responsibilities, such as training new interpreters. And people love, especially our seasoned ones, they absolutely love to train. They absolutely love it. They went through this themselves before when they were brand new and now being able to share. And, you know, everybody has even though we try to standardize the art of interpreting and everything, everybody has their own swag, their own style as to how they do their, their job. Um, and like I said, we do like standardization, but at the same time, everyone has to have their, you know, we're, we're all unique individuals, right? Uh, otherwise we'd just be, be robots or using Google translate, but, um, but yeah, um, people absolutely love being able to mentor, um, mentor, novice interpreters.
0: In your particular experience, Danilo, you've, there's been an evolution, absolutely, not just of your role, but also of your responsibilities. And, and with that, of course, comes so much more than we could potentially understand maybe um, at this level. But there was one point in your uh, career that you found most challenging, and it had to do with the conversation with a your chief diversity officer. Would you share with us a little bit more about that and, and what that did for you?
1: Absolutely. Well, I received word at one point, I think it was 2018. 18, yes, I believe so. Um, that I would have a new a new boss that um the division that language access would be housed would be under the Office of Diversity, Equity, and Inclusion, and that I would be reporting to our chief diversity officer who had been in her role maybe, I don't know, a year, two years, something like that. I got to admit that I was a little bit intimidated by this because I knew that she had very high expectations. Um, and to this day, you know what, she since has gotten promoted to a senior VP and is one of the greatest leaders that I've ever worked with. And she's amazing, but she already knew language access because in a previous role, she had a responsibility for that. And the so
0: context, I love yep. that's key. Okay. Yep.
1: And so um, I was a little intimidated by that because I'm like, what's, what's she going to make me do? You know, what, are we, is she going to make me change everything? And I, I was already a director and, you know, feeling very, very proud, very orgulloso, as we say in Spanish. Um what's what's this new leader gonna do? To make me you know change everything up. <laughs> and so, um, I shared with her from early on. she asked me, you know what were some of the challenges that we were facing? um uh, what were some of the, the what what were some of the things that we were doing right and doing well? And she said, I want you to go from sort of a local leader that is responsible for XYZ hospitals and clinics to an enterprise-wide role. <laughs> I want you to take everything in under one department, one single budget, one single everything. We're going to in-source and hire as many staff interpreters as we can, and I want you to put together all these numbers for it. And this is this is this is what we're going to do because it's the right thing to do.
0: Centralize
1: centralized at all. And, and I, I felt like it was already centralized. And of course, you know, I give my pushback and told her how I felt <laughs> already. Um, but how I was, of course, feeling a little bit intimidated. And all she said was, you can do it. I've got your back. And that resonated with me because so often that either the C-suite or the VP level at hospitals have no idea what happens at the ground level and are not really in tune with language access and don't really understand language access. But I was at an advantage here that not only did she understand language access, but I had her support to move everything forward. So this transformation would take, would essentially increase our staff by Probably a good forty to fifty percent.
0: So before uh-huh. you continue, you just to get an idea, she she mentioned bringing in in staff, right? And so what this means is that you were going to minimize the use of outside uh, interpreters coming in. So contracting less with an LSP, not not completely stop, but just lessen that and bring them in house.
1: That is correct. And so essentially, um, what and and i've I'm very fortunate that I also have a technical team um, and partnering with with them, um we're able to analyze a lot of the numbers and to actually illustrate how um, in-sourcing, which is of course, hiring your own staff interpreters versus going as much externally, still having the vendors because you 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 need them, you absolutely do. Um, being able to illustrate how there would be a cost savings to the organization by hiring FTEs or full-time in, um, employees of the organization. And not only that, but of course, showing how it would help to enhance the patient experience and foster relationships and that sort of thing. And so, um, we essentially went and looked at numbers hour by hour. Okay, what are what are the peak times? Where do we need to to staff? And and, and of course, the result, we could see that the majority of activity takes place during between eight o'clock in the morning and five o'clock in the afternoon. Granted, we know that the emergency departments get busy and that you have labor and delivery because, you know, babies are going to be born at any time of the day or night. But when it comes to physicians making rounds and appointments and procedures and all that sort of thing, The big majority of it takes place during normal business hours. And so being able to look at everything hour by hour and say, okay, I think we need three more interpreters at this facility during the day. And we need some at night over here. And that was to add and supplement to what we already had. We already had an existing team of Mm -hmm. 60 interpreters. Wow. And then being able to staff our virtual team, our virtual team, We opened that up in spring of 2018 with six people, including the supervisor. Now that supervisor, Hector, is a manager, and he has the largest team under language access, which is 40 people. (laughs) So in four and a half years, we grew from six to 40 just on that one particular team.
0: So it was decided to go virt- with the virtual team prior to the pandemic. That has nothing to do with the pandemic. Twenty eighteen. Talk about good timing to even begin these conversations and and to start right. What was the need behind that, or what was that? What was the direction behind wanting to, to also add the virtual component to it?
1: Well, it was um, first. We were already um, doing virtual probably for about four years prior to that. But the idea was to try to create efficiencies, try to create more of a cost savings, more cost savings opportunities through bringing it in house um, versus going externally. And so that was was part of the the intention behind that. But also um, being able to see that familiar face, being able to see those staff interpreters and work with those staff interpreters. um, There's something to be said, obviously, the um, vendor partners that we work with are excellent. They have, um, you know, some of the most qualified medical interpreters in the industry. And we're very, very thankful for that. Um, but there's something to be said about the care experience when it's one of your own. Um, and especially if if you interpreted for that particular patient, um, And then you're have a little bit of downtime or you're working a different shift or something and you're sitting at your computer and then you see that patient again. Um, There's just something about that that really speaks volumes.
0: I love that so much. And I want to get into what you believe to be the, you know, those pillars for a successful model within uh, such a big agency such as yours. But before we do that, I'd like to ask and go back a little bit uh, back to the chief diversity officer um, who who ultimately became somewhat of, of, a, of a mentor, you said, correct, um, and guided you in a way or encouraged you to have these courageous conversations you had mentioned what was it that she taught you or that resonated with you when it came to losing the fear to speak up?
1: I simply observed a lot of her methods and duplicated them. Like <laughs> um, messaging, being able to be more direct in 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 what you in what you want, but also fostering the partnership. At the same time, um, being able to have those courageous conversations, I could see that she already knew how to have those courageous conversations. And I will be honest that even though I've always felt pretty confident in my work, I probably I know I still had some growth to be done and some growth to do. Um, I saw some of the key words that she might use, you know partnership for example solution innovation efficiency um, using a lot of those words a lot of that messaging socialize we use the term socialize socialize is you know we it goes beyond the whole the, the normal that we think socialize we go and we have fun with our friends we have I was
0: gonna say together. yes yeah
1: but in in the business sense, socialize is, I've got this idea, but I need to engage key stakeholders. And the one thing that I noticed that she always does is she engages key stakeholders. Having the chief medical officer, starting at that level before you go anywhere else. Once you get that buy-in from the right executive, usually it cascades down appropriately. And this, um, we had the opportunity to socialize this particular transformation concept um with our uh, c o o. and I knew that, and we knew that once we went to the the c o o um and he gave us his seal of approval, we would be able to um to effectively do do what we wanted to do.
0: I almost feel like that's a workshop in and of itself, you know the 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 messaging. For key stakeholders when it comes to the topic of language access and being able to, to make impactful changes uh under that umbrella and for the for the organization. Um, definitely messaging strategy, all of these components. I can see how a lot of this uh taught you, you know, just a way in which you have these conversations because. One thing um, I believe is bringing them in just to give you the, open the door and give you the opportunity to have this talk or to have the conversation. And another thing is to engage, right? How do I capture the attention of my audience? And, um, and so all of those things, like, I feel like, there you go, Daniela, come up with a workshop for us so that. <laughs>
1: well, and one of the, th- I just remember another thing that, that she said, she said, you can't argue with data. If the data is correct and the data is accurate, you can't argue with it, and you can't argue with the numbers. And so, also going to the CFO, when the CFO heard that we had a proposal, see that's how you have to sell it to the CFO. It's all about the numbers, right? Um, to the chief, you know, to the patient experience officer, it's more about the um, let's let's get into the care experience and everything. But to the CFO, once he caught wind that we had a proposal to save $1 million a year, that right away opened up his
0: eyes. Oh yeah, it was titled and like with the sweet, yeah, with the sweet title, right? Like it was one thing to say, this is candy, and another thing to say, this is chocolate covered and inside there is feeling that you're just gonna savor and love. I mean, that's, you mentioned it earlier, it's messaging.
1: Yep, exactly. Now, of course, COVID (laughs) took a toll um, on on what we did, I do feel that at the beginning of the pandemic or right before the pandemic, there were a couple of months where we did have that sweet spot. We did have that equilibrium where um, where we were capturing probably eighty percent of our virtual volumes in house. Um, but then you know everything went up and down, and and so um and, and so now we're in a little bit different, <laughs> we're in a very different situation than we were earlier, but. Um, but I do feel that that we were at least able to have a successful um, transformation when we experience such tri- um, traditional growth across the enterprise.
0: I mean, unbelievable. I feel like that particular topic um, is so very important, um, even for those that aren't necessarily in an official leadership role. But I think that just to begin even having a conversation about I mean, I mean, you could fill in the blank, you know, if you're a solo um, individual in an organization just trying to have conversations about the importance of professional development for the interpreter, all of these components that you're talking about are completely useful you know they're they're you, you're able to apply them just tailor them you know to to your messaging. so I very much appreciate the fact that you even brought that up and kudos for that chief diversity officer who who led by example because I think that that's definitely it makes a difference right like when you've got someone that comes in with context with vision and then uh walks the talk, Right, like, um, and and I'm sure that the people that work with you, Danilo, say the same thing about you, um, because I know and and I I I feel that you are also the type of leader that walks the talk. Um, I mean, have you been there for 18 years now?
1: <laughs> absolutely, absolutely. I've seen I've seen a lot of a lot of evolution. Um, uh, you know, Mireya, the one thing that I that I I go back to, and uh, a point that I wanted to make. I feel like no matter what we do, we are always in sales. We are in sales no matter what, because we are, we are essentially, even if we work for a hospital system, no matter what area of a hospital system you work for, whether it's language access or, or, or radiology or um, social work or patient rep- representatives, you're always selling and promoting your services. And so, um, I think that having a sales background really helped me a lot in laying a foundation for the current role. You know, so oftentimes language access is it's, it's the elephant in the room, right? Nobody really wants to talk about this. Um, Let's just, let's just create a contract with an LSP and call it a day.
0: Right.
1: You know, just hire a bunch
0: of bilingual individuals. Right. Yeah.
1: Um, Just for compliance sake. And I will tell you, you know, and I've said this before, um, a contract with a language services provider is not a language assistance plan it's simply a way to to be in in compliance with regulatory agencies um and yes agreed hiring a bunch of uh, bilingual does not necessarily equal interpreting either and so um i could go on and on about that but uh also, I'm ready to sign up
0: for the course. Danilo. <laughs> I'm ready to sign up for that for that yeah. workshop, that course, because that's definitely messaging. It's funny because um, you're looking at it from the sales point, which is so true. And I'm looking at it from the communications, right? The marketing, like how do we package it so that it sounds more than what it sounds like, right? Language access, like you said, oh, that's easy, right? That That's like a non-issue, that's a non-topic. Let's just hire a bilingual slash secretary and, you know, they'll cover all the assignments. I'm thinking in terms of uh, education, but of course, in your case, it's, you know, a big hospital setting, which, I mean, we know that there's been examples of these hospital settings that that utilized bilingual individuals, you know, with with other roles in, in the hospitals. So mm-hmm. uh, we've definitely have come a long way, but, you know, not to say that we're done. I'd like to ask you, Danilo, with years of experience now, 18 years under your belt, you have had to been able to kind of think back and potentially credit certain things that have led to the creation, evolution, and growth and expansion of a lot of the systems that, that, that are currently in place um, at Atrium, if you could choose four pillars that have supported everything else that is that, that you've created, what would those four pillars be in support of you know the the uh, such a great model of language access what would you say those are
1: um well mireya that's a really great question and so in thinking of four four pillars maybe that support or that would be key components of a of a successful or robust language access program um first off education and professional development as interpreters, you have to be lifelong learners. I don't care if you've been doing this for 30 or 40 years, the learning curve um, obviously changes in terms of how steep it is, but the learning curve never stops. Mm. And so we always have to be um, abreast of our profession of the latest trends and also of what is the latest terminology um, that might, you know, that might be used out there too. Language evolves, um, healthcare evolves, systems evolve. So that's definitely something. Another thing too is innovation. We Innovation does not always mean high tech. Yes, we can be cool. We can be high tech. We can be high touch. Maybe one of these days we'll be able to have a hologram of an interpreter in a patient room, um, which will be kind of cool to have. Totally. It's going to happen, <laughs> but, but innovation is also looking at things differently. Um, how can we be in a constant state of improvement? How can we do that better? Yes, let's do what worked for us for a long period of time, but let's also see how we can always make things better. Another pillar that I think is a key component is effective leadership. Whether it's someone who's leading a language access program or whether it's someone who is giving support at the executive level, you have to absolutely have effective leadership and leadership support in order to fulfill your mission effectively. That's another one. The fourth one that comes to mind, and I think this goes a little bit with innovation. Now, innovation, we talk about doing things differently, but being in a constant state of vision we have to always be forward thinking, we have not arrived there, we need to be looking at what is the next thing that can be done to continue moving us forward. Because the show must go on, right, we're going to um, constantly be in that in that state of evolution. And so if we are able to um, have a constant uh, vision, then we can continue driving our mission forward effectively.
0: Oh my gosh. And I think it that if COVID um didn't teach us that, then then I don't know what can, right? And in, in in given the examples that you shared with us earlier prior to COVID hitting you already had that vision you know you, you guys already had that vision of bringing in the the remote interpreter and so with that you know when the experiences or situations that are unexpected occur you already have a foot in the door at the very least right because you're thinking ahead and so the pivoting aspect you know it just really depends on the situation but may not be as difficult as potentially someone that wasn't thinking that far ahead or that wasn't being innovative or, um, you know, having that forward vision. So those are those are excellent pillars. I definitely, um, you know, can see how all of those help uh, not just expand and grow, um, but just even create a robust language access plan. And, and there's so much work underneath each one of them. Um, you know, the first one you said about uh, professional development and, and education, I mean, that in itself, sometimes many interpreters have difficulty explaining why there is importance and um, such a need for the continued growth of the language professional um, the second one being innovation. Absolutely. I love that you mentioned it doesn't have to be with technology necessarily, right? When, when you're talking about innovation, you can talk about di- all kinds of different uh, components uh, under being innovative and creative, right? The, the word creativity always comes to mind for me when I'm thinking about innovation. Um, the effective leadership, poof. like I said, you need a workshop for this because the effective leadership absolutely makes a huge difference um, when it comes to even just having the conversations and allowing. Allowing the opportunity to talk about education and to talk about innovation. And, of course, the last one uh, that you mentioned uh, to talk about uh, having vision, right, and, and be, having that forward thinking, uh, thinking into the future. I knew, Danilo, that this was going to be such a great conversation. and. I I just appreciate the opportunity to be able to dig a little deeper into your thought process and, you know, just your experiences. I feel that, um, this is exactly what we need in order to continue being innovative and having these ideas and finding inspiration and what best than to find the inspiration behind the people that are already doing the work and that understand that have that context, such as your experience with, um, your, uh, chief diversity officer former chief diversity officer um so so i very very much appreciate the opportunity to have this chat with you i'd like to give you the opportunity though to talk about anything that's dear and near to your heart anything that you'd like to share with this particular audience that you want to make sure that resonates with them that you send out so that it resonates with them anything in particular you'd like to share
1: absolutely so there's two main things that come to mind one of the greatest things to, there's two great things that one can do as an interpreter to further the career and to really just be the best that you can be. One is to invest in yourself. Okay. It is, it is absolutely worth it um, for you to be able to, if you're a translator, invest in that, in that software, (laughs) in that translation memory software. Okay. Also if you're an interpreter or a translator invest in yourself in that conference. Being able to go to conferences is absolutely priceless. And I tell people there is sometimes far greater value in the networking aspect of the of conferences than in the actual content of the sessions. Now the content of the sessions is is great. Sometimes if you go, you never, sometimes you don't know what you're going to get, right? If it's a reputable presenter, they can be great. But if it's someone that you've never heard of, maybe you 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 might not always know. Now, obviously the selection committee for the proposals is very selective and, and we, we try to, conferences try to bring great things, but networking, networking, absolutely. Um, I tell people that in my role, I am a hybrid of those that I have learned from. And so I have learned from other language access leaders across the country. I have several friends in the industry that have been on this show before um, that that I have been able to network with and learn just a little bit, little bits and pieces, very strong presence of, of amazing language access leaders that has come out of the Northeast, out of New England, also amazing ones here in the Carolinas, amazing ones on the West Coast in California and everywhere in between. Texas, big one. So, you know, being able to network with them has really allowed me to um, to innovate myself. And so I think that networking and investing in oneself is probably one of the greatest things that you can do as a language professional.
0: I once had someone say, you know, okay, networking, yeah, yeah. And I felt like anyone that that just kind of brushes over networking like that isn't doing it right. <laughs> so I completely agree. Uh, the networking component, um, I mean, it, I, I can't speak enough about it. it. It definitely, I love how you said, you know, you're a hybrid of those that you've learned from, of the, those that you've networked with. I, I that's that's beautiful. I love that. It's so true because it they they give so much, particularly those that are willing to give so much uh, to to others that are only seeking to learn and, and only seeking to grow. So um, such as such as you, Danilo, for being here and uh, sharing your experiences and, and a little bit of your knowledge. And um, I very, very much look forward to hopefully, potentially, maybe one day taking a workshop with you and, you know, (laughs) learning a little bit more. But um, in the meantime, I very much hope that uh, those that are listening have taken a lot in. I know I have. I've learned a lot today. And um, again, I very much appreciate the opportunity of having you here today. For those that are interested in learning more about you and the work that you do, where can our listeners find you?
1: Well, um, you can find me on LinkedIn. Um, if you would, if you would like, I'm more than happy to connect with anyone. I am very easily uh, Googleable. <laughs> that is even a word. Uh, if you, if you, my name Danilo Formolo. If you Google my name, um, or if you want to connect with me on LinkedIn. Um, you know, that's, that's there. I'm also happy to share Mireya with you, my, my email address um, that can be included um, with, you know, with the, with the posting. Um, But really LinkedIn is a really, I'm I'm big on LinkedIn. Um, I really enjoy it. And so um, that's probably the best way that anyone wants to reach out and and connect with me. I'm more than happy to.
0: Fantastic. Thank you again, Manino.
1: Thank you, Mireya.
0: Hey, thanks for sticking around till the very end. If you'd like to connect with me, head on over to the website brandtheinterpreter.com and click on the Connect With Me tab. You can also stay connected on social media, Instagram, Facebook, YouTube as Brand the Interpreter or Mireya Perez on LinkedIn. Till next time.